Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. You are now listening to Season 4 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. It's time to feast on the words of Jesus Christ. In this episode, we are going to see that there are two kinds of shepherds. Good shepherds and bad ones. And how this answers several mysteries in our world history. One of my favorite words in English is juxtaposition. Latter-day Doctrine teaches that the two greatest gifts of mortality are the gift of a physical body made in the image of our heavenly parents, and the ability to learn the nature of opposites in a place where the atonement of Jesus Christ can forgive the mistakes we make as we learn, known as agency. These gifts work because of juxtaposition. See, what a great word! To juxtapose two things is to place them together so they can be understood by their contrast. This new understanding becomes a third thing that is usually surprisingly different from the original two things being contrasted. It's a little like having a pool of white paint, with all that color implies, and spilling it into another pool of red paint, knowing red's symbolism. 
they juxtapose when they mix together. The white is still there, as is the red, but in the middle is something new. Pink. The color pink evokes something that is neither red nor white. It is both, and it is something new. It's a third thing. Zechariah 11 is a fascinating chapter for this same reason. This is a chapter about two types of shepherds, a good one and a bad one. But there is deep meaning to be found in juxtaposing them. In fact, I believe the real purpose of these verses can only be understood through juxtaposition. In our last episode together, we left the Lord calling for the doors of his people's enemies to be opened. This is necessary because the Lord is going to destroy their arrogance, which is bound up in the culture of Edom. Let's take this feast together. Zechariah 11.3 There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. There will be much wailing and howling from the religious leaders of Edom when their glory is exposed as a fraud. Edom is known for his untractable pride. They are a culture of death, and they would have been more murderous if the Lord had not set their limitations. What happens next, after the Lord has shown Zechariah the destruction of these distant kin, is illuminating. The Lord tells Zechariah to find a flock of sheep that are due to be killed for commerce. He is to feed and care for them for a season, and see how it makes him feel. Thus saith the Lord my God, Feed the flock of the slaughter. It doesn't take Zechariah long to learn an Eastern-style lesson here. Whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty? And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. It is not a comfortable feeling to tend a flock that has no friends. Those that own them keep them only for death, and have the secret knowledge, unbeknownst to the flock, that any kindness shown to them is merely a kindness necessary before their murder. Do you hear secret combination and kingmen and elitists? Those that do the selling of them only see their deaths as a means of their own aggrandizement. Lastly, and most sad of all, the shepherds who watch over them and care for their little ones don't even pity the death they know is their fate. This is an ugly thing for Zechariah to have to bear. Once the emotional weight has become real for him, the Lord gives him the purpose of the assignment. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. Man has forced just a position on the Lord God. We read his rebuking words and are struck from our position that he is angry much of the time. But in reality, he is meek and kind and completely unable to get us to listen to him. He is our only hope and advocate, and we won't hear him. It is maddening. Zechariah, in a small way, gets to understand this with the doomed lambs he has to shepherd. The prophet knows that any kindness or attachment, anything that he tries to do to help them, will not change their fate at all. We are too often like this. 
there is an interesting story that the Jews tell their children. They say that after the Israelites had escaped through the Red Sea, they looked back and saw the Egyptian army pursuing them. They then watched in jubilation as the Lord closed up the waters, destroying the charioteers and the army. They tell their children that their ancestors leaped for joy at Pharaoh's demise, but when they turned back around, they discovered the rebuke of their God, who had just saved them on the shore. He was not happy at what had happened, and he was even less pleased that Israel was happy. He insisted they take a moment and reflect on the loss of life that had just happened, despite the fact that, had the Egyptians reached the other side, they would have slaughtered the children of Israel. This is a good thing to remember for the day when our God destroys the enemies of the Latter-day Saints, which he has promised to do. The Lord next tells Zechariah that the same way he felt about the doomed flock, which he was forced to care for, is the same way God feels about destroying the nations and Esau. Then, he says something worse. This was the same way he also felt about Israel. How tragic! Hear the cry of he who wanted to be as a hen, protecting her little ones, not a sorrowing shepherd. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, and one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. The Lord was such a good shepherd that he even had two staves instead of one. One was the staff of beauty, and the other the staff of brotherhood. Then he tended his doomed flock, called Israel. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them and their soul also abhorred me. Rabbis completely disagree on who these under-shepherds were. As there is no consensus on their names, we will move to the greater point. What the Lord is saying here is that during Israel's pre-Zechariah history, he was forced to fire three particularly awful leaders of the people, leaders who hated the Lord, and God was completely disgusted with them. The sad thing is that there have been so many lousy leaders over Israel that no one can agree on which three the Lord was specifically talking about. How truly sad is that? Then said I, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. At the fall of Jerusalem, the last time, this indeed happened. The siege from Rome was so bad that cannibalism took hold within the walls of Jerusalem. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. The Lord made covenants with Adam, Enoch, Noah, Shem, and Abraham that pertained to more than just Israel. These covenants belonged to all the nations of man. So bad did society become that the Lord decided to stop leading all the nations and focused just on Israel. You will remember that his plan with Israel was to mentor them and then use them as a shining light upon the hill to teach men a better way and bring them back to the Lord. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. When Israel turned to evil, it left the Lord with nothing. 
So he asked them to value him as their leader. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. It was then that Israel said, We think you're worth about the price of a slave. A terrible insult. It would have been better to cast him off, saying, You are worthless. But no, they knew he was not worthless. They knew he was the best and most patient shepherd they had seen. But they undervalued him anyway. Hurt and offended, he told Zechariah. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Throw the money away, he yells. And then the prophetic sign that will yet haunt Judah on the day of their awakening. Take the money that you thought I was worth and throw it at the potter in the temple. This they would do in shame. You'll remember that the elders of Israel bribed Judas, the Lord's apostle, with thirty pieces of silver, the price of a slave, to betray the Lord. That is all they were willing to pay for his life. Do you hear it? Judas took the money and later realized more fully what he had done. He then went back to the elders to return the money and seek some type of forgiveness. The elders considered the money blood money and therefore unclean, despite the fact that they were the ones who made it so. Being unwilling to take blood money, they used it to buy a field known as the potter's field as a cemetery. Judas went out and hung himself in grief. Being the good shepherd, but being prized no more by his sheep than a slave, the Lord took his other shepherd's staff, the only one he had left, the brotherhood band of the tribes of Israel, his own clan, and... Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Since he was not wanted as their shepherd, the Lord who came in the name of God would allow another to come in his own name, and tragically this fool the flock would receive. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. It is interesting to note that Judah did flock to several rabbis after they rejected Jesus. Great teachers like Rabbi Hillel, Rambam, Rashi, and others some of which told them to wear their odd hats and perform certain festivals and chants, many of which are the marks of orthodox righteousness today. Many of the weirder traditions of Jewry have come from these other shepherds, and not Jehovah, nor Moses. In terms of civil leaders, instead of God Almighty, there have been cruel shepherds. Herodians, Caesars, European kings, Khazars, Rothschilds, the Illuminati, and even evil popes. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat, and tear their claws in pieces. Even though the people gained these bad shepherds by their own choices, the Lord would still hold them, as he holds all men accountable for their actions. Bad may lead to more bad, but all sin will be answerable to God individually. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock! 
The sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Many have suggested that the above verse is a picture of the Antichrist, the one who is to set himself up as a god and cause such terrible strife at the end. These say that the righteous will know him because he will be blind in one eye and have a useless right arm. Could be. I frankly take a different view of this verse. I believe that the Antichrist is actually the father of the Church of the Devil. And while he may play a part in these last fights, I suspect that Gog is actually a separate person, and then it will be Gog who leads these attacks, but that is my opinion. I believe the scriptures bear my opinion out. Note the Lord's famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.29 And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. The more important issue for us is to make sure that we are not on the side of those attacking the land of Israel in our day. Then it won't matter. But I do think that verse 17 should be translated like this. Curse upon the evil shepherd. The strength of his arm shall be as nothing, and his vision will be worthless. He is a blind invalid. And we know what happens when the blind leads the blind. The gist of the above is the juxtaposition between the Lord and what the people claimed they wanted, somebody else other than Jesus. There is no one who could even possibly compare to him. But thus it was. We are living the consequences of our forebearers' choices now. Zechariah next is told the fate of Jerusalem. He is shown our day and the turmoil this one ancient city has brought upon the entire planet. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. There is not a State Department in the world that does not have an entire file cabinet dedicated to what do we do about the city of Jerusalem. The amazing thing is that no matter what any mortal government says, Jerusalem continues to grow, prosper, and expand. Anyone who goes up against God's city finds that they are blocked in some manner, and the burden of what do we do only increases. In terms of Judah's enemies, nothing they try works. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. In terms of the civil government of the state of Israel, they have taken hope in the strength of their people. Note Zechariah 12.5. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, 
The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. This strength of heart, despite national sin, is real. In our day, we have seen Judah roar, and when he does, the world does take notice. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheath, and they shall devour all the people round about, on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The next verse is a little enigmatic. The best that I can do is offer two thoughts. Joseph Smith did allude to a future leader of the state of Israel, perhaps the governor of Jerusalem, who would be a leader of the house of David in the last days, before Armageddon. This may be referring to him. It is also possible that it means that many of the great cities of Israel, like Tel Aviv, Haffa, Rishon Lezion, Patatikva, Eshad, Netanyah, Beersheba, and the like, will find wholeness before Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the greatest of all these cities, would be whole, but it would be a city bitterly divided in ownership. And the Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. It seems that Jerusalem will be restored to Judah at last. Today, Jerusalem is still a divided city. Shamefully, the Temple Mount, which David legally bought for Israel from Arunah, is still the undisputed site of both Solomon's and Herod's temples. It is now occupied by Muslims whose claim on it is nowhere near as solid as Israel's. I, for one, cannot understand why the Muslims, who have both Mecca and Medina, vastly more important holy sites to them, are so piggish as to insist on holding Solomon's Mount. The good will they would engender with the world in letting Jews have the only holy site on the whole planet that is unarguably theirs blows my mind. This is the arrogance of Edom, which, in the end, will move the Lord to act. It would be better if the nations of the world would let the Lord have Jerusalem, but it will not happen that way. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. In regards to the rebuilding of Solomon's temple, I have heard many express the opinion that Mormondom's latter-day temples fulfill this Jewish need. While the final say on all of this can only be answered by the Lord and his living prophets, it is useful to note that Joseph Smith did not feel this way. Consider this interesting statement by the prophet. Jerusalem must be rebuilt, and Judah must return. It will take some time for them to build the walls and the temple. The prophet Joseph plainly taught, to the hoots and mockery of the Christian world around him, that the sons of Levi would be required to perform the ordinances and rites of the Mosaic law at least one more time in righteousness. The point is that all of these things should have happened correctly under the watchful eye of the great high priest and king of Israel. Jesus attempted to do this, but the people rejected him. Note this teaching from our prophet Joseph Smith. Christ, in the days of his flesh, proposed to make a covenant with the house of Judah, but they rejected him and his proposals, and in consequence thereof, they were broken off, and no covenant was made with them at that time. 
but their unbelief has not rendered the promise of God of none effect. No, for there was another day limited in David, which was the day of his power. And then his people Israel shall be a willing people. And he would write his laws in their hearts and print them in their thoughts. Their sins and their iniquities he would remember no more. What many people don't realize is that the Jewish rabbis have been actively preparing for the temple's return when God opens the means for it to happen. They need their temple. None of our modern temples are set up for animal sacrifice and the intricacies of the Mosaic law, which they are required to perform correctly at least once. Our commission is governed under the Melchizedek Order, the Abrahamic Covenant, the birthright promises of Israel through Joseph of Egypt, the extension of Enoch City, the return of Father Adam and Noah, and all of the gospel of Jesus Christ restored from the former church. Ours is the fullness of times, and the burden of preparation. Theirs is the final fulfillment of the law of Moses, and the installation of the king. As modern Jewry has felt the weight of their calling, many have been faithfully studying the law, the prophets, and the commentaries anew with an eye on the return of the temple. They have been searching the genealogies to find sons of Levi, to rebuild temple furnishings, and have even raised a red heifer to make the rites of purification possible again. We know that they have rebuilt the great menorah, and using a computer, figured out how to restitch the holy robes of the priesthood from a single strand of thread, as was required anciently. It is also whispered that they have the Ark of the Covenant again. All of these things exist now, and thus make possible the following. Zechariah 13.1 In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. I believe that this opening fountain is the renewed interest in the Jewish heart to return their people to the culture that was lost to them. I believe the desire to rebuild their temple and perform the rites of their people reflect this awakening desire. It takes faith to believe that such things have value in a modern age that rejects the supernatural and the divine. It takes faith to believe that obedience to morality will cleanse the soul and please a hidden God. Despite all the disappointment of an exile, a diaspora, and a holocaust, the children of Judah are trying again. Those of lesser faith have given up entirely, but a fountain has opened in Judea, and many of the Jews want to be clean. The thirteenth chapter of Zechariah really starts with verse 2. It is rich and poetic like the writings of Isaiah. It contains brilliant word plays and clever allusions to help the faithful identify and understand the promised Messiah. It is at times so clever as to almost be too clever. The profound lesson of these verses can be easily lost. The greatest advantage of very clever scripture is its staying power. Illusions like those found in Daniel and Isaiah have survived the centuries, even when passing through the hands of the synagogue of Satan and the church of the devil, who thrive on mysterious texts. Whenever reading clever passages, it is useful to remember that words written in the Spirit are best read in the Spirit. So with the prayer in your heart, let us begin. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. 
The coming of the Lord and his claiming of the Holy Land as his place of inheritance shall put an end to the myriad of false teachers throughout the land. Gone will be all of the competing voices of religious and political wisdom. All of those who love and sell lies to the people will be removed so completely that not even their names will be remembered. It is here that the Lord gives the world one of the most clever signs of his coming. Let's go through the verses one by one with commentary and then sum it up at the end. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. It will happen that when anyone shall prophesy, his or her parents shall attempt to kill him. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. And every false prophet in the land will be embarrassed for the vision he or she offers. They will no longer dress in hippie-like clothing to make people think they are prophetic. But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am an husbandman, for men taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Instead, they will say, I'm not a prophet, but a farmer. I was taught to raise livestock since I was a boy. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. If any notice that these have been stabbed by their parents for claiming prophetic gifts, they will answer, No, no, these were wounds I got at my friend's house. I swear, that's the truth. This is another astounding prophecy of juxtaposition. Just as the Lord used the lesson and the real-world example of a good shepherd versus a lousy one, here he uses the lesson and real-world events of the true prophet's son versus the stupid prophet's son. Let's go through this brilliant piece of godly reasoning together. At a future time, the Jews will be so zealous for truth and accurate for prophecy from real prophets that they will be totally done with the false ones who have plagued them through the centuries. We saw Joshua's trial with the two false prophets in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Poor Jeremiah, Lehi, and Ezekiel had a terrible time with the lies of false prophets in Jerusalem who were telling King Zedekiah that all would be well. The day will come when the Jews will so desire only truth that they will clean out all the liars, idols, false prophets, and unclean spirits from their land. We saw this attitude rise in the days of the Maccabees. Judah realized that all of her plights had come from liars, claiming to speak for God. They even put additional safeguards into the law to protect them, such as how far a man could walk on the Sabbath day and not be counted a sinner. These additional commandments were not from God, and yet if they were not obeyed, the community counted the transgressor as a sinner. It would be these traditions that would label Jesus a sinner in Judah, when he taught the correct law among the people. The Lord is telling Zechariah that in time the Jews would be so exasperated by false prophets and their lies that they would even stab a knife into their own son or daughter who dared to speak in God's name. And even if this did happen, and the son did live, and goes to live out in the desert wearing untailored clothes made of camel's hair and then sort of acts in a prophet-like manner, and the people find him again, they will say, what are you doing out here in the desert dressed like you might be pretending to be a prophet? 
The son will say, no, I'm not doing that at all. I'm just a poor farmer with worn-out clothes. I've never been a prophet. I was taught only how to raise animals ever since I was just a little boy. And then if they press him further and ask, really? Then why do you have a stab wound like your parents stabbed you for pretending to be a prophet? He will say, no, no, I got this stab horsing around with my dumb friends. So if you aren't really laughing at this a bit, you have missed it. This scenario is so ridiculous and so insulting that it borders on silly, but it perfectly illustrates the great frustration of the Lord. Here, Israel is so eager for truth that they will not tolerate liars and stab their own sons to shut them up. Now note carefully, this is exactly the very thing they accused the Lord of doing and the very thing they did do to him. And yet, he had told them the truth. His own counted him as just such a fool, babbling and pretending to be a prophet in the desert. They saw him as a dirty, tired, wailing fool, preaching among other poor fools who became his friends, horsing around. John the Baptist, in rough camel's hair, they feared was a true man of God. But our Lord? No. He was stabbed in the household of his friends for speaking the truth. He was forced into the desert when the great temple on the mount was his own house. This is how they saw him and mocked him. They counted his ministry as having only the value of a worthless son stabbed to shut him up, bought as a slave for a few silver coins. Are you laughing now? No. Are you crying now? This is a difficult but brilliant prophecy. It gives us a peek into the mindset of the people and how the entire experience felt to our Lord while he lived it. Some of the most cruel things in all Jewry that have been said have been hissed about Jesus of Nazareth. In time, some of these terrible things were echoed by the Jews living in exile in Europe. I could tell you some of these, but they are so terrible that they would make this podcast inappropriate for younger listeners. These were codified into several of the Jewish Talmuds, where they fell into the hands of powerful Christians. Some of the terrible outrages which fell upon the Jews of Europe came about when popes and priests read what the Talmuds were saying about Jesus, his followers, and even his mother Mary. These were the Catholics of the Inquisition days, charged with purifying Europe for Papal Rome. If you can imagine the horrible things that were written in the Talmuds about Jesus and Mary, you will get a sense of the rage that some Christians had for the Jews at this time. These Talmudic teachings of loathing, hatred, and mockery will yet be the painful realization when their Messiah does appear in their hour of greatest need, clothed in power and mighty to save. They will flock about him in joy and then see his stab wounds. A godly Messiah should not have stab wounds. What are these, my Lord? They will ask him. And he shall answer, They are the wounds I received in the household of my friends. Their thoughts will flash back to the silly son of the desert and the terrible things that were said about him. It will be a time of weeping, but it will turn into a time of great joy in the end. Let's pause here and come back to this in our next feast together. How grateful we are that as Christians we know the name of our Good Shepherd. And we may not only learn His Word, but we may learn to hear His Shepherd's call. 
may we learn to hear him and his voice above all others. Our Good Shepherd has promised to lead us through the coming dark valleys of death to safe and sure pastures. Thank you.